Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And, uh, you know, I have a bright outlook on life now that the nice gentlemen have had a, a little talk with me. And, uh, Jonathan uh, is suddenly a shiny, happy person. I have had what they like to call a personality readjustment. And I just want to say yet again, thank you to all of the <laughs> men and women who have worked at Lockheed Skunk Works, the CIA, the NSA, uh, and all other type of secret organizations. Please... God bless America. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move on to what was our timeline. 1957, right? That was yes. where we left off. Yeah, uh, we were right about to get to the suntan. Yeah, which that's something that Lauren and I know a lot about, seeing as how we're both such uh, tanned, completely translucent. Yeah, we are vampire people. We we are the ones who hiss when the sun comes out. But the suntan does not refer to anyone deciding to, you know, get a, a actual tan. That's not that's not what this is about. I believe it was so named. Or I, I imagine it was so named because it was a very high flying vehicle. And also it was using liquid hydrogen. Hydrogen, hydrogen. being very important with sun. Right. Yeah. Hydrogen's turned into helium. The temperature of millions, millions of, of degrees. degrees do do. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it was a, meant to be a spy plane. So it was a sun. The suntan was a spy plane that would fly on liquid hydrogen as its fuel. And um, as it turns out, that's uh, that's kind of scary to develop because uh, I don't know if you know this, but hydrogen tends to be a, a volatile substance, let's say. Yes. This project came about because of photos from a U-2 mission over Soviet Russia of hydrogen liquefaction plants. And they were afraid that the U.S. government was afraid that the USSR was building a plane that could spy better than the U-2. And we just can't have any of that. We could not have uh-uh, that. We do um, not truck with that. <laughs> So, uh, so Skunk Works was given $96 million to design their own hydrogen-powered plane. So uh, we, just imagine this. The early days of testing your liquid hydrogen production system, uh, you, you go to work in a bomb shelter, the walls of which are eight feet thick in case you happen to blow yourself up real good while you're working with liquid hydrogen. So that you don't blow your neighbors up real good as well. Really builds confidence. <laughs> so the facility ended up investing in lots of stuff so that they could avoid any possible flames, including... All of the tools were non-sparking. You weren't allowed to carry your keys in your pockets to avoid any potential sparks. You had to have grounded boots so that you wouldn't create an electrostatics charge. Uh, it was really, really important. And they did pretty well up until they had a tiny itsy bitsy fire. It was it was a stove fire. It wasn't it wasn't really that big, uh, you know, and it but it took place like 700 feet away from the main hydrogen tank. Yeah, which uh, absolutely terrifying. I can't imagine what my reaction would be, nor can I imagine what my reaction would be when I found out the next thing that happened. Because this project was top secret, they wouldn't let firefighters into the building to control the flames. Right. And they could not get the flames out with fire extinguishers. They had gone beyond that that level. And yet they could not also allow firefighters in because it's top secret. Uh, they, they they did wind up. I mean, th- nothing exploded. Yeah. It turned out to be OK. Yeah. Um, California but... is still there. <laughs> So it didn't go boom. But but here's the thing is that the it really illustrated that that accident illustrated how potentially dangerous this this project was. And so because of its level of risk, 
it was decided that it was too much for Lockheed to uh, endure, and so they scrapped the project. Yeah. Also, Kelly Kelly Johnson, who we mentioned in the previous episode, wasn't personally sure whether these hydrogen engines were going to be able to go faster or further than a conventional kerosene burning jet. And so, you know, the the final decision was like, here's your ninety million of the original ninety six back right. U.S. government. Yeah, and, we don't uh, want to blow things up. Like we one, we cannot we can't guarantee that it's going to perform at what we hope. It will. And two, we can't guarantee it won't explode. Yeah. So as an interesting side note, uh, part of what spurred all this interest in liquid hydrogen was was also the CIA's discovery that a Soviet scientist named uh, Peter Kapista, mm-hmm. yes, had uh, been taken out of a Soviet labor camp and put into a research institute. Um, he, he was a, he was a specialist in in low pressure liquids. Mm. And it had turned out that he was working on the Sputnik for which he would win the Nobel Prize in 1978. Now, Sputnik, which we also refer to as the satellite that went beep. And that's pretty much all it did. Uh, apart from terrifying an entire country, <laughs> it also did apart that. Apart from kicking off a whole new section of the Cold War that we yeah. like to call the space race. Yeah, but th- that'll, that'll, that'll play in a little bit with Lockheed, although really Skunk Works had very limited uh, uh, operations with the space race, although some of the people who would test fly some of their uh, jets would end up walking on the frickin' moon. And NASA would continue to use some of their vehicles in um, testing. Yeah, testing, yeah. Exactly. So May 1960, a very important event happened, not directly related to Lockheed, but something that was would end up impacting them down the line. That was when the United States pilot Francis Gary Powers was shot down. He was flying a U-2 plane over Russia. Um, he was shot down after I think they fired something like seven or eight missiles at him. Oh, wow. Uh, and they also oh. had a MiG in pursuit. The MiG got hit by one of the missiles and was destroyed. Um, and uh, and Powers said that he saw another parachute open after he had to eject. He actually could have bailed earlier, but stayed in his plane to make sure that it would crash in an unpopulated forest area as opposed to crashing in a town. And he ejected from his plane. He landed safely. He was uh, uh, captured by the Soviet Union and um, sentenced to three years in prison, followed by seven years hard labor, so 10 years total. Uh, he would not have to serve out all that time. In 1962, he was part of a prisoner exchange along with another uh, Soviet prisoner, and uh, he was exchanged for Colonel William Fischer, uh, who was a Soviet KGB colonel, um, on February 10th, 1962 in Berlin. So he would return home. He was he was faced with lots of criticism, people who said that he should have activated a uh, a self-destruct mechanism that would have destroyed the equipment aboard the U-2 so that the Soviets couldn't get in charge of it. Some people said that he should have taken the CIA cyanide pill and committed suicide rather than be taken uh, cap- uh, captured by the Soviets. Oh, I guess it's your job or something. Yeah, I... he, he was eventually like the, officially people said. You did exactly what you were supposed to do, but he faced a lot of criticism at home. Um, this this also sparked discussions about needs for for better spy planes. Yeah, something has to replace the U two because remember the U two had been launched the the previous decade, and so you know clearly you don't want to have that spy plane flying ten years later. I say as the U two is currently flying right now, <laughs> more than fifty years after. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, this the, the the new project would be called the U three. Yeah, originally that was the original designation. They of course would change that. Yes, but that was what they first called it. And uh, this is also when I wanted to take a little side note to talk about what it's like to work at Lockheed because I was reading an article 
that uh, had an interview with Edward Lovick, who was a retired, he, you know, retired Lockheed employee and he was a radar expert. And uh, the reason why I bring him up now is because this is about when Lockheed started looking into ways to make planes harder to detect. So one of the ways of making a better spy plane is making one that can't be seen by radar or ground or whatever. And so uh, Lovick, who is probably one of the leading experts in radar at the time, simply, he says, because he just started playing with it earlier than most people were, um, he was very instrumental in trying to figure out what would make a plane harder to see by radar. And it mm-hmm. took a while for them to figure this out. Yeah, He talked about the fact that he would go with Kelly Johnson to some of these meetings with the CIA. And uh, by the way, at that time, Lockheed was referring to the CIA as, quote, the customer, end quote, <laughs> which I thought was a great way of putting it. And um, he said that uh, right before Lockheed got the new spy plane contract, we went to a hotel room for a meeting. It was Kelly Johnson, a few science advisors to the president, someone from the CIA and myself. Pillows were put over the heating vents and the room was checked for bugs before any of us spoke. He said that at the time he thought it was pretty silly. But, <laughs> but uh, 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 you know, a Here's the thing is that during the Cold War, there was a lot of spying going on on both sides. Oh, sure. So while it sounds like you were being like incredibly paranoid to go to those kind of extremes to make sure that no one's listening. The fact is, people were trying to listen. People were absolutely trying to listen. Yeah. uh, Lockheed around the same time had also instituted a policy that if any of the employees were approached by someone uh, uh, born out of the U.S. Yeah. Who wished to befriend them? Yep. That, that they were supposed to inform management immediately. Right. Yep. Yeah. You don't like your your friend Boris, who seems to be incredibly <laughs> helpful and wants to introduce wants to you buy to new cheese plates. Yeah, introduce you to this new drink called vodka. You might want to report that first. <laughs> uh, yeah, Lovick also ended up talking about what it was like to develop the technology they were working on at the time, because at this point they weren't using computers. Computers were around in the in the fifties and sixties, but very few places were using them at this point. So he says that the engineers were actually going about the, the old fashioned way with slide rules and just they were actually writing things down, planning it out on paper mm-hmm. and you know. mixing chemicals by hand. Yeah, uh, sometimes sometimes by feet. He talked about how they would mix chemicals in vats and it would often be like if you were uh, stomping on like grapes grape for stomping. wine. Exactly. He said it was exactly the same stuff they were using. So they were really using foot power power to uh, mix some of the stuff. Which, when you consider what some of that stuff is, I'm not sure that all those people are okay. (laughs) But uh, then we get to 1962. This is when they start working really seriously on developing a um, a a stealth vehicle. Although at the time they had not quite perfected the the way of going about it, and uh, they started with a program called the A12, also known as Oxcart. Um, They wanted to make it an invisible plane. So 1962 is when they started this Oxcart program. Oh, right, but the CIA wouldn't declassify it until 2007. Yeah, that's how secret it was. So it was, again, another collaborative effort between Air Force, CIA, and Lockheed, just like the U-2. Uh, it could travel at speeds of around 2,000 miles per hour, and it was meant to reduce the radar cross-section of the aircraft compared to earlier vehicles by making it smaller and making it out of other materials besides just you know metal materials. Mm-hmm. Um, this was before they had figured out that the real secret to making a, a plane's signature disappear was not in how large or small the plane was. Um, but rather in the surface angles and how they create bounce of, of, of the radar signals. Exactly. So, you know, we would eventually learn that you could actually have a pretty large aircraft that could still be effectively invisible to radar if the surfaces were shaped the right way. This was before we knew that. So 
Um, 13 A-12 aircraft were produced under Oxcart, and uh, they actually would be tested again at Groom Lake, also known as Area 51, which, while I still want to do that episode, I have been uh, convinced that we can put that off for a little while. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, there were other vehicles that looked just like A-12s, and again, it was another one of those kind of cover stories, right? The idea being that, well... If any of these vehicles are spotted, we can always say, no, 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 that was this other designation that looks just like the one you think it is. 1964, that's when we get the YF-12A interceptor, which was based on the A-12 design. So that was the Oxcart design that I was talking about just now. So same sort of idea. So the A-12 Oxcart was really meant as a surveillance vehicle, okay? But the YF-12A was meant as an interceptor, another one of those fighters that could intercept other aircraft. Right. Um, also, as Jonathan was just saying, um, so so President uh, the president at the time was Lyndon B. Johnson, mm-hmm. and he announced its existence, you know, only a year or so after it had been in existence. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and, and that was in order to kind of shield the fact that these other sneaky planes were flying around. Right. There. So this interceptor, they they everyone acknowledged the fact that these interceptors existed. They did not acknowledge that the A-12s existed. So if you were to spot an A-12, you would think it's just one of those YF-12As and uh, everything would be hunky dory. And originally, the Air Force was going to end up purchasing a bunch of planes, uh, the next generation of this, and that designation was YF-12B, and and that would have that would have really worked. We think this this one was really mostly used as a tra- test craft and, yeah. and as that kind of decoy. Right, right, and um, that program was canceled. Didn't didn't happen. But one of the test pilots for the YF-12A interceptor was Jim Irwin, aka one of the astronauts who eventually landed on the moon. Yep, he uh, he's done a moonwalk, literally. You know, and maybe figuratively, too. Maybe he did the dance. I don't know. But uh, he definitely has walked on the moon. Pretty... <laughs> I imagine that there was a pop culture um, imperative for anyone who had actually walked on the moon to yeah. do the moonwalk at yeah. some point. I, I suppose so. I don't know how you invent something retroactively, but I'm sure it, they worked on that. Uh, also in 1964, that's when they introduced the S. Oh, well, they didn't introduce it. They they built it <laughs> and it was in operation, but we sure as heck didn't know about it yet. Certainly not. The SR-71, also known as... The Blackbird. Oh, this is a gorgeous aircraft. Yes. Scary looking. Again, you look at this and then you look at the aircraft uh, again in G.I. Joe, like I mentioned in the last podcast. Cobra's got some aircraft that look like the Blackbird. They do. I had never thought about yeah. that before. Yeah. Because I mean, uh-huh. it's all sleek. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it, it just looks, it looks like it's going fast while it's staying still. <laughs> but it could go very fast. Uh, this this was a Mach 3 plane, which yeah. is which is like... Over 2,000 miles per hour or like 36,000 kilometers per hour. And it could fly even higher than the U-2. The U-2, the, the cap on the U-2 is about 70,000 feet. This could go 85,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So uh, the it, it flew a lot of missions, but it would turn out that the U-2 would end up being more reliable and less expensive to maintain and would end up remaining in service longer. So the Blackbird ended up getting uh, retired earlier. In fact, the U-2 is still in operation, so it's not been mm-hmm. retired. The last Blackbird mission was in about 1995, right. although I've heard that as late as 1999, NASA still had one for environmental research. Right, right, yes. So there are some that are being flown in non-military applications, but as a military vehicle, it was retired in 95. Um, uh, it was yeah. another one of those that won one of those uh, Collier trophies. Which is understandable. Uh <laughs> It made a trip between New York to London 
in just under two hours. It was like Oof. one hour, 54 minutes. I can't get to Florida in under two hours on, on my airplanes. I yeah. mean, they're not my airplanes there. <laughs> yeah, we haven't gotten to the point yet where we have our own private <laughs> aircraft. If anyone would like to donate an aircraft tech stuff. Or, you know, you just want to convince somebody. Well, Discovery, anyway. So it beat the previous <laughs> speed record. So so the, the previous speed record was held by a plane that did that same trip in just under five hours. Uh, so three hours difference. Shaved off, yeah. That's incredible. Not bad. Yeah. So moving up to 1966, this seems really early to me. Uh, we just did an episode about drones. When I say just did, it actually isn't that recent, but it, you know, in the, in the memorable past. Yeah. And most of the drones that we were talking about in that episode really didn't start kicking off until the 1990s or yeah. so. And so, so in 66, we, we came across the D21. Yeah. The tag board, which mm-hmm. was an unmanned drone. It was classified as above top secret. It like, would not be declassified until 2007. Kind yeah. Of top secret. That, that when CIA was just like, Oh, let's just go ahead and declassify all this stuff. Oh. I'm here. Let's get to give me the declassify stamp. I'm just <laughs> going to go bonkers. So yeah, the, the tag board was a, a drone that was, uh, they had an antenna. It was meant to receive commands through the antenna, so you would actually control it from the ground or from uh, an aircraft. And in fact, it was supposed to launch off one of those A-12 ox cart aircraft. The, uh, right, um, right. I've, I've read that some blackbirds were used for this purpose as well. Uh, interesting. It was designed to fly out over territory where the U.S. didn't strictly have permission to fly over. <laughs> Because the idea was that since it was smaller, that it would be less likely to be uh, noticed. And it was meant to take photos of sites like weapons facilities at altitudes of around 1,500 feet, which is pretty low. And then in June 1966, there was a tragic accident, which uh, what happened was the drone was supposed to launch off the back of one of these Oxcart A-12 aircraft. But it did not launch properly. It was going at an incredible speed, like Mach 3. Right. And it didn't launch properly. And it ended up cutting that aircraft in half. Yeah, the the, the pilot and test engineer both ejected safely, but um, but I believe drowned. Well, uh, the, test, the, the test, test engineer did, yeah. What happened was apparently the faceplate on his uniform went up and water started rushing into his oh, suit. Uh. Yeah, so he, he, he tragically drowned in this accident and... Uh, and so the project was wound up being scrapped. Yeah, it, it was people at Lockheed were absolutely devastated by this. I mean, it was just a complete freak accident. It was unforeseen and it really shook things up back at Lockheed. I mean, it was, uh, you know, anytime anything like this happens, obviously, that's a terrible tragedy. And this one just really affected them quite deeply. Uh, in 1970, Lockheed would then go on to fire the test pilot, Francis Gary Powers. If we listening earlier, that's the guy who was in the U-2 plane that got shot down over Russia. Oh, right. So he came back and he was still working for Lockheed. But then he he decided to uh, write down some of his experiences. Yeah, he published a memoir yeah. about the whole experience. And it was not really, um, shall we say, favorable. To the CIA in particular. Yeah. yeah and then mysteriously, Which, he lost his job. Crazy. Well, it may also be that, you know, Lockheed very, very serious about this whole let's keep our secrets kind of thing. And it may be that that also played a, oh, a part in oh, it. Oh, absolutely. But uh, yeah, that was um, that happened. 1972. That's when uh, this was crazy. The HMB-1 Glomar Explorer. Okay, so this is a submersible barge, a barge that can go under the water. It actually was designed to go under the water and land on some underwater supports. And the whole purpose of this thing was to act as a cover so that the United States could do a salvage operation on a sunken Soviet submarine. The idea being that 
This thing would cover up all of their operation. They would retrieve the submarine, pull it into the barge, bring the barge back above water and sail it back. And no one would have known that that's what they had done. Wow. It sounds like it came out of Hunt for Red October. (laughs) If if Sean Connery was not aboard that saying something's here, don't react well to bullets. I'd be really disappointed. Um, We can only hope. (laughs) And it ended up eventually becoming uh, once it finished its job. No, what do you do with a big submersible barge at that point? So it's been converted into a, a, a above water dry dock where you, the, uh, the ships would come in and then be serviced and fixed or, or decommissioned or whatever. Uh, for a long time, it was dry dock for another ship called the Sea Shadow, which we will talk about shortly. And then 1977, here are two of my favorite aircraft that have ever come out of Skunk Works. These were also incredibly important. They were flown uh, extensively at Groom Lake slash Area 51. So I wrote about them quite a bit when I wrote my article about how Area 51 works. That's when, the first time I ever learned about these. Uh, these are the Have Blue craft. Yeah, one and two. Have Blue one and Have Blue two. And these were proof of concept prototypes. These two aircraft were incorporating all the information that Lockheed had been gathering about stealth technology in order to decrease their radar signature. So they were, again, top secret vehicles. They were ex- tested quite a bit at Groom Lake. And the whole idea was now that I, getting those angular uh, surfaces. So it looked a little weird because it, you know, it had all these angles to, to, to bounce the radar in yeah, random places. It was almost like a non-Euclidean Cthulhu type aircraft. And it's not quite that much. But I mean, it's like, you know, if you've ever seen those old stealth bombers, they look clunky, right? Because yeah, of those yeah. weird angles. Yeah, it's totally, the you know, like the opposite of the aerodynamic kind of thing that you think of when yeah. you think of something that's supposed to be flying. Uh, right. it's, its nickname wound up being the hope, the hopeless diamond. The hopeless diamond, because <laughs> it had these weird angles to it, like the hope diamond does, because, you know, it's been cut a very specific way. So it was called the Hopeless Diamond. Um, yeah, you, you, like I said, you look at the SR-71 Blackbird and that thing looks like it's going fast standing still. Right. You look at one of these things and you're like, that is not meant to go in the air. <laughs> that That is just wrong on every level. Um, but, you know, it, they decided to really go into this after the Vietnam War because it, during the Vietnam War, uh, U.S. forces kept on encountering trouble with uh, surface-to-air missiles where the, a lot of the aircraft were getting uh, shot at and shot down by these missiles. And so they wanted to have something that could operate without being spy, you know, spied by Spotted, radar. You, yeah. know, you don't want that to happen. So that was the main purpose. Um, now, the, the have blue one and two, they were just meant as prototypes. It was really a proof of concept. It was to show the U.S. military, hey, this is going to work. We can build this into an actual working aircraft that we will use for real military purposes uh, we just need the funding, and uh, so it wasn't ever meant to go into combat. It or didn't. It like didn't that. really go anywhere. But um, but the concepts behind it would wind up being used later on, which we will talk about in our second half. Yes. So let's take a quick break and thank our sponsor. All right. Let's get back into talking about the super secret stuff. Uh, so you know, we had just talked about the Have Blue one and two. Obviously, not meant for combat. I mean, they could go 600 miles per hour, which is about 966 kilometers per hour. That's not that fast compared to other aircraft at the time. It was right. Obviously, I mean, a prototype. That's that. That's as fast as um that that first P80 that we were talking about. Right. Was going, so. Right. So obviously, that was just sort of hey, look what we can do. Well, 1981. That's when uh. 
we started seeing a new version of the U2. Remember, that was, U2 came out in the 50s. In 1981, you get the U2R, also known as the TR1, also known as the Dragon Lady. Which, granted, was the original designation for the CIA U2s way back when. But that was the thing, is that the U2 had largely become the domain of the Air Force, and now the U2R was this kind of super-secret version of the U-2, uh, which had an increased fuel capacity so it could fly longer. And the TR stood for Tactical Reconnaissance. And it had a super pod, which was a kind of a, a little... Think of like a bulbous kind of projection where all of their super-secret uh, sensors were. So very, very um, precisely tuned sensors to get all kinds of information about the area they were flying over. Um the current designation for this aircraft is now U-2R. So it's no longer called the TR-1. Uh, it's just the U-2R. But there are other U-2Rs that are that don't have the super pod. So it's a little yeah, confusing. And there have been a whole bunch of different versions and designations of this over the years. Um, yeah. The U-2S won one of those Collier trophies in 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, but the U-2R, I believe, is still the highest flying single engine airplane in service. Yeah. And also, you got to remember that Skunk Works did not work on every variation of the U-2. They They worked on the first one and they worked on the U-2R. But by that time, a lot of that work was going out to other branches of Lockheed. So this was a, you know, we're really just focusing on the skunk work stuff here. If we were talking just about Lockheed, this, uh, we'd have to do like a six that, episode. Yeah, that would be like a nine-parter. So uh, let's talk about the uh, F-117. That is the Nighthawk. The Nighthawk. The first <laughs> radar-evading aircraft. So we actually had these F-117 aircraft in use during Operation Desert Storm back in 1991. Lauren, you wouldn't remember that. You were, I think, you know, two at the time. So, <laughs> yeah, I was uh, like nine. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, the that was, by the way, the only jet in the coalition forces that had the authorization to strike targets within the city limits of Baghdad because they thought that uh, it was the only one that could get close enough to guarantee that the strike would hit the precise target and not hit something else instead. Um, it was often is referred to as a stealth fighter, although it was really an air-to-ground combat vehicle, not air-to-air. Because when we think of fighters, we usually think of, you know, aircraft that are designed to shoot down other aircraft. Right. Uh, this was more of an attack vehicle than a, uh, fighter. Than a fighter. Yeah. The designations get a little confusing. I would have to keep looking them up because, you know, what can, I'm a podcaster, not a fighter. So despite what Ben Bolin will tell you, because I did shake him up a bit this morning. I, I hear that that was for completely legit work purposes. Yeah, there's going to be a Stuff Mom Never Told You video that I will link out so that you can see me uh, rough up Ben Bolin. It happens on a daily basis anyway, but this time it was caught on camera. Anyway, the Nighthawk was retired in 2008. It's so. another one of those Call Your Trophy winners. Mm-hmm. I, it's kind of interesting how many of these have won. Uh, so 1985, that's when we get into something that's not an aircraft, the Sea Shadow. Oh, right. This was a prototype stealth ship. Yeah, so funky. Did you see a picture of this? I have not, no. you got to look up a picture when we're done. I'll, I'll definitely have to link a picture of this on social as well, because yeah. it just looks really odd. Oh, we should make a gallery. Yeah, We that's, can do that. That's the, excited, we can totally that, that's do that. the most excited I've ever been about making a gallery, y'all. Because <laughs> there's some pretty cool jets in this. We'll make a gallery for it, sure. So the Sea Shadow is this prototype stealth ship. It had those weird angular surfaces, kind of like stealth bombers, stealth fighters, that kind of thing. Um, but it... Think of it like it, it almost looked like it was suspended over the water. OK, and you have these two wings that come down on either side. Like think of a manta ray that has its wings down toward the ocean floor. Right. Mm-hmm. The edges of the wings are 
obviously in contact with the water. The rest of the body appears to be above the water, and it's bulky. So you're like, how the heck is this how thing is it doing up that? there? Turns out it's got a submerged hull. It's got this enormous hull that's underneath the water that's submerged that is keeping it buoyant. So it's not sinking down and just flopping over on its side. Uh, but yeah, you look at this thing and you're like, that, just like the, just like some of the aircraft, like, that should not be that allowed not to be happen. That should not be That doesn't look like a thing. That only works if that's non-Newtonian fluid in that ocean. <laughs> and I know that water's <laughs> Newtonian, so that can't be it. Uh, yeah, it, it was, uh, also a design to show off the, uh, usefulness of automation. The idea being that we could really have these vehicles that would need a relatively small crew because we automate as much of it as we possibly can. So there are 12 bunks aboard. Oh, wow. A crew of 12. Um, and it had a microwave. That was the only, uh, g- thing in the galley. There was no like stovetop or anything. There was a microwave and 12 bunks. So luxury. Um, and, uh, it was really just kind of designed to be a proof of concept. It was never meant to be a production vehicle. It was never meant to go to the military. It was more to say like, let's see if this works kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so nothing, it, it was never built into any other kind of ships. Uh, eventually it was retired. It went to that, that barge I was talking about earlier. That All was right. the dry dock. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the, eventually the, the United States government allowed the, I want to say it was, I want to say the Navy took control. I didn't write this down in my notes. I remember reading it. But anyway, the military organization in charge of the Sea Shadow decided to sell it. Uh, yeah, to, to recoup some of, some of those costs, they sold it, um, to a company under, under the, the stipulation that they had to immediately dismantle it. Yeah, they could not sail it. The United States government said, all right, we're gonna sell this. We're gonna let you sell this off to whoever bids the most, but they cannot sail it. Yeah, they you, have can, to, you can look at all the bids, but uh, you have to take it apart. So it was, uh, it's been dismantled. So the Sea Shadow is no more. It was dismantled a couple of years ago. So that's kind of sad because when you see pictures of this thing, as soon as I saw it, I thought, I hope this is at a museum somewhere where I can go and see it. And nope, nope. it is gone. Mm. So maybe someone will build a replica at some point. Uh, in 1990, that's when they introduced the YF-22, also known as... The Raptor. Yeah, and usually we just call it the F-22, uh, which was a, a stealth air superiority fighter. Superiority fighter? Yeah, uh, it's meant to be <laughs> super... It's a fifth generation supersonic fighter, single seat, twin jet engine aircraft... Uh, it can also be an attack vehicle, so not just a fighter, but also can uh, can act out against land-based targets. And it can serve as a signals intelligence vehicle. So the NSA is probably pretty interested in these things. That means that it can intercept electronic messages. Um, and it formally entered the United States Air Force Service in 2005. So 1990 is when they start really working on it. 2005 is when it enters into service. So that's a long time. You know, more than a decade before it entered into service. Yeah, and there are still um, a few squadrons of them in uh, in service today. Yeah, I think there's a, somewhere something like ten squadrons total, wow. uh, something like that. Uh, and the final F twenty two was delivered to the United States Air Force on May second, two thousand twelve. So, so not that long ago. No longer in production, but yeah. just barely. Yeah, these things, by the way, obviously, when you put in an order for two thousand five hundred uh, jets. It takes a while to fill that order. <laughs> as, as you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, corporate note in 1995, Lockheed and Martin would combine in what was called a merger of equals. Right. So we've been talking about Lockheed all this time. But remember, if you listen to the beginning of the last podcast, we talked about how the, the Martin company was also instrumental in early days in aircraft. Well, they had been quite busy themselves and had developed many aircraft that also were Incredibly innovative 
And at this point, the two companies merged together to make a mega innovative aircraft company. Meanwhile, in 1996, they come out with the, uh, the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works come out with the RQ-3A. Dark Star. Yeah, Dark Star. Also known as Tier 3 or sometimes Tier 3 Minus, uh, which was an unmanned aerial vehicle designed to be a high-altitude drone. So uh, this was another one of those innovative approaches to trying to do surveillance without putting an actual human pilot at risk. Oh, right, and, and this was a project that would... I, I think that both Tagboard and Have Blue um, really influenced this one. Definitely. Yeah, because it had stealth technology, making it harder to detect. Uh, it also had a lot of autonomy. It could take off, fly to its mission, complete its mission, and come back and land all without a human controller uh, taking uh, control of that. But uh, also it had the ability for a human controller to get in there and change the parameters of the mission uh, on the fly. So it wasn't like, you know, you had this pre-programmed route that it had to take. And once you press play, that's it. You got to wait till it comes back. You could actually change things on the fly and, and change the programming. So really innovative, particularly in 1996. And it had a jet engine. It used jet engines for propulsion. It wasn't like a little rotor based drone. This yeah, is that's wild. Yeah, this is a jet. Um, so officially, that program was shelved sometime around 1999, but there are some rumors that it's not really shelved. Shelved so much as totally in operation. Yeah, and and like totally secret. And uh, that's all I'm going to say about that, because honestly, I do not need another coffee break. Um, <laughs> so uh, 2000, that's when we get the F-35. Lightning or Lightning 2? Yeah, Lightning 2. It's the sequel to Lightning. So if you remember <laughs> in our previous episode, we talked about the first Lightning jet aircraft, which was way back in the very earliest days for Lockheed yeah. when they were doing their work with the military. So the Lightning II is sort of the idea of the next generation of military aircraft. It's a single-seat, single-engine, multi-role fighter. So multi-role also means they can do multiple things. It can be... A, the, the the ground attack, the air defense, yep. the reconnaissance, yeah. all of that. Yeah, it's like, you know, throw it at me, bro. I'm going to do it. So uh, there are three variations on the F-35 that allow it to take off or land in different uh, environments. So, for example, there's one version of the F-35 that can land and take off from aircraft carriers, uh, but the others don't have that capability, that sort of thing. Um, so depending on what you need, you use the, that particular type of, of F-35. And, and uh, the military has ordered a bunch of these, haven't they? Yeah, more than 2,400. Uh, and they are going to the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marines. And different branches are using them. For those of you who aren't familiar with the branches of the military in the United States, uh, there are pilots in these different in branches. Them, right? Like Air Force, obviously, you would you would immediately assume Air Force. I remember talking to a friend of mine who was telling me about... Uh, how much he thought it was weird the way that uh, the Air Force was depicted in Top Gun. And I said, do you mean the Navy? Because those were Navy pilots. The Top Gun program was a Navy program, not an Air Force program. I'm, I'm not entirely positive that um, that the strict military accuracy was what people are watching Top Gun for. I don't know either. I, I knew that by the end of it, I, I too had the need, the need for speed. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know exactly how accurate it was all the way from the beginning to end. But anyway, 2001, <laughs> that was the introduction of the Desert Hawk. And that's another drone. Yeah, another UAV, mm -hmm. unmanned aerial vehicle. It was uh, designed to be really portable. It was extremely light. In fact, the original Desert Hawk was made out of essentially kind of foam. So think of like 
styrofoam or packing foam that you would find in, in a box. That's essentially what this thing was made out of. That makes more sense. Uh, your next note is that they were launched by hand and yeah. therefore, okay, I get that now. I think they even used bungee cords. So it was almost like a slingshot launch and they had electric motors. So they were almost silent. Wow. Yeah. Incredibly light, incredibly quiet. Uh, we now no longer use the Desert Hawk actively. We have a replacement, the Desert Hawk 3. I'm skipping over two, but the Desert Hawk 3 is what we use today. It's much more sophisticated, and it uses a gyro-stabilized 360-degree sensor turret that's uh, mounted on the bottom of it. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. It's also made out of very lightweight composite material. So it's it's gone beyond the foam, but it's still very lightweight. Uh, 2006. This might be my favorite. The hybrid this is a this is an airship, right? Yeah. So the, if you are at all of the steampunk vein, this is the aircraft for you. It looks like a blimp or a dirigible. It's it's an airship, and it is beautiful. It's so it it's meant to act as transportation. So it's got a large capacity for carrying lots of people and low operating costs, and it can operate from either existing infrastructure, meaning like some sort of landing field or landing strip, like an airport, or it could just land anywhere that's a remote open space. So as long as there's not like stuff for it to bump into, it can land there. And the first um, commercial airship is scheduled for 2014. Yeah. And uh, this is similar to another vehicle uh, that's actually more of a military vehicle. In fact, it is a military vehicle that is also a future item that we'll be seeing from Lockheed. Well, maybe we won't see it, but it'll see us. I'm talking about ISIS, which is the Integrated Sensor Is Structure Aircraft, which looks a lot like the uh, the hybrid. It's another blimp type thing, mm-hmm. but it's but meant this, to. But this is a stealth blimp. Yeah, and it spies on you. Um, yeah, so it's got surveillance and communications gear and flies in the stratosphere. So for those of you who listen to our Google Loon podcast, you know all about that. We're not going to go over it again, but you know that's really that's high. high up. Yeah, so, and it also is able to actually detect targets that are undercover or under camouflage. It's got like camouflage piercing radar. It's pretty cool stuff. So it's similar to the hybrid and it also uses, um, fuel cells. So yeah, that makes sense because it's like the hybrid too and solar panels to, to get its power. So, uh, right. The contract for this was, um, was awarded to Lockheed Martin in 2009. Yeah. But, uh, but I think that we had, did we have something oh, else? From it's back? it's not no, it's not it's not going to be the the ISIS. As far as I know, the delivery date has not been divulged necessarily. I know that it's coming. It is listed on Lockheed Martin's website. If you go to their Skunk Works website, they talk about it, so you can actually read about it. Um, it is uh, able to cover five million nautical square miles with surveillance from one one oh, airship and then it, you can locate it relocate it anywhere in the world in within 10 days for something that floats that's pretty impressive all right so let's get back we talked about the hybrid um, uh yeah also in 2009 uh the advanced composite cargo aircraft the ACCA so again this is another look at using composite materials and the idea of using composite materials is finding something that has the strength of something like steel but is far lighter so you want something that's really durable but very light so that it ends up making your aircraft much more efficient. You don't need as much fuel. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, also reducing the kind of problems that you get with metals like a, like corrosion and uh, and fatigue exactly. from, from those temperature differentials that you're mm. going to get going up and down. That's that's very true. So this is a way of getting around that. And uh, really, again, this is one of those programs where it's not like the ACCA is going to become a, a leading aircraft. It's more like the technology is being explored while they're designing it's that stuff. It's a blue kind of thing where, yeah. where it's, you know, it's a working. Well, well, 
Yeah, we'll find it. Well, it'll end up emerging in other aircraft, right? Mm-hmm. That Lockheed makes and that other companies make. Uh, then we have 2010. That's when the Harvest Hawk took flight. So you might remember back in the other episode, I talked about the Hercules cargo right. plane. And I said, eh, it's kind of a cargo plane, you know, four, pro- four propeller cargo plane. It's pretty it's big, neat looking. Uh, yeah. neat looking, sort of useless at the time. Yeah, you know, not, it, it wasn't. Useless, it, but it certainly wasn't like super secret. Like it wasn't like some sort of surveillance craft. Well, now we've got the Harvest Hawk, which is the uh, the reason why it's called Hawk is it's the Hercules Airborne Weapons Kit. So it's a weaponized cargo transport aircraft. It's armed with Hellfire or Griffin missiles, guided bombs, and a thirty millimeter cannon, and it's operated by the United States Marine Corps. I am terrified of this. Simplify. This, this is terrifying. <laughs> and now we're up to current day, 2013. And it's time to talk about the SR-72. So this would be kind of the, the Black Hawk successor. This is a concept aircraft. It, it's one of those things that it hasn't even been funded yet, but Lockheed Skunk Works has been working on it. And it would end up using two different jet systems to have a hypersonic jet. Hypersonic being super wicked fast. Uh, here's the problem. So there are two, the two different types of engines would be your standard jet turbine engine, which tends to work at speeds at Mach 2 or, or slower. Uh, right. And, and then that, our, that, that, that's the kind of thing. I mean, uh, the, the thing with these ramjets that we've talked a little bit about yeah. and, and scramjets, which stands for a supersonic combustion ramjet. Yeah. Although I just really like the word scramjet a whole bunch. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, is that, you know, they, they, they can't, they can't start moving until they're going really, really fast right. because of that, because of that, um, um, air drag that they need in order to fuel yeah. their combustion. Otherwise it just doesn't work. So you, you have to be going really fast to, uh, to operate your scramjet. So this combines a jet engine and a scramjet using an over under fuel approach because you can't use the same fuel for both of these either. It's actually a very complex system, but the idea is that the jet engine would get the, the, uh, SR 72 moving at around Mach 3. And then the scramjet would start to take over, and then you would get up to your full speed, which, which is, is Mach uh, six. Yeah, really uh, which fast. Which is twice the old Blackbird, um, and is about four thousand five hundred miles per hour. Or I, I, I recorded the other in meters per second, and it's about two thousand meters per second. But really fast is what we're talking about here. Yeah, and it would be armed with high-speed strike weapons, or HSSWs. And uh, so you could just think of it as a missile that is able to fly at hypersonic speeds. So they hope that they'll have a demonstrator program demonstrating this technological ability. A by, prototype uh, uh, by 2018. Yeah. So uh, right now, like I said, there's no funding as of the recording of this podcast for this particular project. But that it's one of those things they're trying to do. Know about. Yeah, there could be. I mean, CIA might be, you know, maybe NSA. Maybe they're like, we need to get away now that we've been looking at everybody's stuff. Um, but anyway, this could theoretically hit any target on any continent in less than an hour. God. So it takes off and then within an hour. Anywhere in the world, it could hit its target. Keeping in mind, it's both the aircraft and the missile, which is HSSW. You know, it goes at that hypersonic speed, too. Big challenge involves uh, actually heat management, because when you're traveling at that speed, the friction from the air is intense. So they had kind of two different approaches they could go. They could go with a, sort of a, a cool approach, which is where they use some form of heat shielding type stuff, kind of like the stuff that the uh, space shuttle program used. Or they could go with a warm approach. Warm is a relative term. It's actually quite high temperature where it allows the aircraft to warm up, but you have the crew um, 
sequestered in some way where they are able to operate without being hurt. Cooked. Yeah, being cooked, essentially. So if they go with the warm approaches, which is what they said they're going to do, and assuming it's going to be a manned vehicle, which that's still, I hate to use this phrase. No, I don't. No, Up in don't. the air. It's still up in the air. <laughs> um, it could be manned or unmanned, but assuming it is manned, that probably means that the cockpit will not be a cockpit where you actually have a window out to see where mm. everything is. They would be flying this thing that's traveling at Mach 6 using instrumentation. So it's kind of like operating a submarine, except you're operating a submarine that's traveling at Mach 6, thousands of feet in the air. So um, for those of you who have fear of flying, imagine that. <laughs> Where you can't see out and you're going really fast. Yeah, yet again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna respectfully bow out of that particular yeah. job. I think that podcaster is much better suited for me. Um, they, they have, they have also announced though a, um, collaboration with Boeing to compete in the U.S. Air Force's long range strike bomber program, which is a challenge to deliver 80 to 100 stealth long range bombers for operation in the 2020s with an upper price limit of only $550 million per unit, which I say only, but is really not Come that on, much for that thing. That's bargain prices, people. <laughs> We're just, we can't give these things away. Yeah, no, that's. So I'm, I'm excited to see. Uh, whether they actually come up with anything for that. This, this was only announced, I think, in October of 2013. Um, we are recording this at the beginning of November, so. And who knows, maybe we won't actually see evidence of this till 2060, because that'll be when the CIA declassifies it and lets us see it. Anyway, this has been really an interesting subject to tackle. I mean, it's, it's always kind of weird to take a subject that was under such secrecy for so long. And now it's much more open, although we know there obviously well, are projects that are happening. the stuff from the 1960s is much more open. Well, but they, I'm there's curious a, there's to see a over website. the next few de- decades. There's a website where they <laughs> they list the stuff they're working on. Now, granted, that doesn't mean that's everything. In fact, I would I would be shocked if it's even uh, a significant percentage of everything. But the fact that they show anything is kind of uh, interesting to me. So anyway, Skunk Works is interesting. And as soon as that car moves away from the corner, I'll start planning on when we'll do our Area 51 podcast. But man, they are persistent. So uh, in the meantime, if you guys have any suggestions for topics that we should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, let us know. Send us a message. Our email address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter. You can find our handle. It is techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.